Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, listener. I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to this very informative episode of Stages. I'm so excited to share with you my conversation with production designer Roger Kirk. Roger has enjoyed a vast career designing stage, film and television around the world. His designs, both costume and set, brilliantly transport the viewer into another realm, offering a vibrant sense of time and place. He learned his trade working at the Sydney studios of the ABC. One of his first big gigs was designing costumes for the Sydney Theatre Company, their production of Chicago, a landmark production in this country, for it was a Broadway musical brought vividly to life by an entirely Australian creative team. Extensive work followed, cementing Kirk's place as one of the country's most sought-after production designers. It was his costume design for The King and I on Broadway that brought him accolades and attention to a world audience and production houses. Kirk was awarded the 1996 Tony Award for his costume design of the Broadway revival. Returns to Broadway have seen designs for Jesus Christ Superstar, 42nd Street and King Kong the musical. But that's only one of the many chapters in Roger Kirk's stunning career. We learn more of his story and terrific insight into the task of the designer in this episode of Stages with today's guest, Roger Kirk. Well, Roger, it's, it's um, lovely to catch up with you again. I haven't seen you for quite a while. No, I haven't, no. Um, in my research, I was, uh, I was surprised and also delighted to, to learn that your very first design job was the Sydney Theatre Company's Chicago, that iconic production of from the 80s. Was it the 80s? was the 80s. Yep. Yeah. Um, that was your first gig as a, a theatre designer. Um, no, I think I did one more. Before then? Before that. Right. I did You and the Night and the House Wine for Nimrod. Right. Downstairs. Chicago, of course... I'll I'll correct my research. Chicago, of course, was a a similar work in in the Australian scene because it was the first time that uh, we had an all-Australian creative team doing the musical. Yeah, it was... um I, th- I think what happened with Chicago was that I'm, I'm, I could be wrong, but I think it was um, Chorus Line won all the Tonys that year, and so it, it didn't get the recognition it sort of deserved. Yeah, that was 1975, and, and was it? Yeah, Chorus Line scooped the pool. Yeah, and so it sort of never got up there as one of the sort of major hits. And um, so I th- think, you know, and bef- before that, 
you had to buy the when you bought the rights you had to actually buy the design and the choreography and everything and I think it was one of the first times they could buy the rights to do it without buying everything else so because the early days Betty Pounder would be sent over, over by J.C. Williamson and she'd and learn the show and then come back and reproduce it yeah, yeah. I, I, I can always remember when um, we first started to work on it um, like I was you know so excited to be doing a big show um, and a musical that um, I think I, I think Nancy I don't know if Geraldine came or not I know Nancy came and over to my house when I lived in North Sydney and um, I'd done a lot of research on it and everything and um, Nancy said well I want this to be good she said I've been doing it in my lounge room for years <laughs> so when it gets on stage it's got to be right <laughs> I laughed I thought that was quite funny How do you begin to find an, an aesthetic for the show a look for the show? Well, I, I don't know. It depends. Because it's set in a women's prison in the 1920s. Yeah. Well, the thing was, Brian had been asked to design it because Richard asked him to come back from England and be an associate director at the Sydney Theatre Company. And this was going to be the first thing he designed. And I... I only got the job because I was doing Marsha Hine shows at the ABC, which were, you know, big musical jobs. And uh, and that was really my big break in TV. And um, Ross Coleman was doing stuff on the Marsha Hine shows. And um, he said they were going to do Chicago. And I said, and I didn't know Richard from Adam in those days. And I said... Well, tell Richard I want to do the costumes on it. So, so the next thing Ross says to me, Richard said, give him a ring, come and see him. So I did. And Brian wanted someone else to do the costumes, but Richard didn't actually think they were the right person for it. And he said, I want you to do it, but I, I, you know, I need to have Brian on on side so he said if you can give me a few photos I'll send them off to him and tell him I'll you know want you to do it anyway when he saw the photos he said yes and that's how it all started so and that was the first time that you had uh, designed alongside Brian Thompson also I guess yeah. was it the first time you met Brian yeah it was and then then we did a whole lot of stuff like I think Chinchilla was the next play at the Opera House after Chicago, which Rodney was doing, and Brian was designing, and they didn't have a costume designer, so they asked me to do that. And then we did Macbeth, and Brian and I did that. And then, like, after that, for years, I did two or three things down there, sometimes with Brian, sometimes. The first thing I did by myself was um, As You're Designing, and um, Brian was going to do the set and I think he got a film and he couldn't do it so they asked me to do the set and I did both so after that. 
I guess it's important finding a, a, a co-designer, whether they're doing the set or the costume, that you really uh, are on the same page at because you've got your costumes have to fit into their world that they create. Well, well I always think if you're designing costumes for a set designer, it's better to wait and see what they, see what they do first. Right. Because, like, Brian's usually got a strong statement. So... And, and also, I guess it depends on the director because, like, you know, if the director goes, no, I want real period costumes, then, you know, um, that's what you want to do. You might say, well, can we stylize it a little bit or, or whatever? But, you know, you've got to be in sync with the, with the director. So whether he leads or sometimes you lead... Um, I, th- I think it's easier to lead with a set because you can have an idea and they they like that idea. But I think with the costumes, you've got to wait till the person does the set. Does that make your time frame a little bit more condensed? You've, you've got to work a little bit quicker after they've finished their design and you see the model? Um, well, I think it's easier... To, to design costumes than it is to design a set because, you know, you've got to do all those working drawings. It's like building a house. Yeah. You know, you've got to, you're an architect. You've got to do the model and, you know, costume design. You just can sit down and, you know, draw them up, you know. Well, well, that's how I used to work with Brian. I'd wait and see what he did first, you know. Because you've got to come up with a whole colour palette as well, don't you? Well, Which that's I guess right. Is based you know, on the, and, and, the set design. And like, if you're designing both, um, you can decide where you put the money. You know, like you can decide to do a cheaper set and spend more money on the costumes, or do a lavish set and you know less on the costumes. So you know, you're in control of when you're in control of both you can tell where you're going to put the accent, so to speak. So. A large part of your career has been costume design, am I right? Well, yes and no. Um, like, it was quite funny, because I started at the ABC, and at the ABC you had to do set and costumes. And so the first job I got in theatre was costumes only, and it was working with Brian and... I worked a lot with him, and um, so I was really only known as a costume designer, even though I did both. And then John Bell offered me Candide because he wanted to do a musical scene as Richard did um, Chicago, and I did both on that one, set in costumes. So, I mean, in Australia I was known for... Um, set and costumes but overseas I was only known as a costume designer because that's how it panned out so to speak Do you enjoy one more than the other? Um, no, I think it just depends what the what, what the gig is what yeah. the gig is, you yeah. know, yeah like, you know The King and I was a I'd just done a film in Thailand so I had a whole Thai crew that helped me find all the stuff, you know. So, and I mean, like, actually, it was very funny. John Robbo, um, I think it was John Dietrich took over from Philip Quast in 
Les Mis, and I went to his first night, and Robbo took him and me for dinner afterwards. And he said, um, you need to get on to Frost. He's going to do King and I, and you're the only person that should do it. <laughs> and, and so I said, um, oh, okay. And I've never rung up for a job in my life. And so, because, I mean, I, I think I did know Frost at the time. And um, I rang him up and I said, oh, Robbo said you're going to do King and I and I'd really like to do it. And he said, oh, well, um, I'm sorry, but um, Christian Fredrickson's designed it. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, OK. So he said, I'm sorry, but it's already gone. So then what actually happened was, uh, who was the direct, George Whaley? He was going to direct it. And um, George kept getting films and it kept getting put off. And then the last time he, George Whaley put it off because he got another film, um, Frost moved on and or somehow met Chris Renshaw and he said, oh, I'd love to do King and I. And then Brian met him and said, oh, I'd love to do King and I. And so that's how it happened. And the rest is history with the King oh, and I. I mean, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, it really pays to make it known, I guess, if you want a particular gig, doesn't it? Whether it's a phone call or a Well, I've only a, done a it letter. twice. I did it once on a movie too. Huh. I asked my agent to ring and they didn't really do much about it. And then I rang Anne Churchill Brown and she said, oh, that's a good idea because she was handling the director. And... Um, I had the job in two days, and so I moved to her from from my agent. <laughs> <laughs> well, the King and I went on to uh, tour all around Australia and uh, seasons in the West End and, and Broadway, in which you were awarded the coveted Tony Award for, yeah, for costume design, and Brian was awarded set, set design. Yeah, that must have been a thrill. Yeah, it was. I'll never forget when I got there, and we were staying at some hotel. And I met Brian in the foyer to have a drink. And he had all these newspapers. And so he's got the newspapers and he said, oh, I thought you might be interested in these. Here's, here's the Times, Tony Tips, the, win <laughs> the winners. And he and I were on all the lists, the King and I. So it was quite funny. Do you remember who you were nominated against? Um... No, I can't really. I don't know because I watched the um, the YouTube clip recently. Oh, but um, Jane Greenwood for a delicate balance, yeah. Alison Reed for buried child, Paul Tazewell for bring into noise, bring into funk. Oh yeah. And the award goes to Roger Kirk, the King and I. Well, I'll never forget. Um, I work with Philip Cusack a bit out here, and um, we were at Joe Allen's. This was like two nights before the awards and we're having dinner and we came out and um, Liz Smith got out of a taxi and she's, she's got on the poster over there it says Liz Smith the most ravishing show you'll ever see on Broadway anyway so she gets out of the taxi and Philip knew her and she said oh hi Philip you know and he said oh this is Roger Kirk he's designed the king and I and she said 
I knew Irina Shiraf, and I tell you, King and I never ever look like that. <laughs> well, that's a lovely compliment. <laughs> it was very funny. Yeah. Your uh, your leading lady in Australia was Hayley Mills, and uh, other Annas around the world were um, Elaine Page in London and Donna Murphy. Donna Murphy in on New Broadway. York. Did you find that you had to tweak the Annas costumes, uh, or at, make them a bit different for each Anna that you were uh, well were I mean, dressing? You do because do you, they have an input as, as as the actors about how they want their frocks to look or? Well, I, I didn't really have any trouble with any of them. Um, but, well, I mean, look, the thing is, as a designer, it's your job to help tell the story. And if the actor doesn't feel comfortable in what they're in, they can't do their job. Mm. So if there's a problem, you have to sort of come to some compromise. I mean, it's a bit different when... I did have a bit of trouble with the woman who played Dorothy Brock in Stuttgart. In 42nd Street. In 42nd Street when we did it there. And she just... She wouldn't stand still. You know, oh, these clothes are not designed for me. And she had a good figure. She was fine. And the poor the poor girl that was trying to fit her, like, she just kept... You know, pulling everything and, and whatever. And I finally, I went to Mark Bramble and I said, oh, she's a nightmare. We're going to have to probably change everything. He said, no, you're not. Just tell her this is what she's wearing and you'll do your best to make it suit her, which is what you do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can actually make anything work on anybody if you tweak it, you know. I can't say I've ever had a, you know, a costume that I haven't been able to make work, you know. Those uh, ball gowns that Anna wore, I believe they had to be lowered from the ceiling. They were so so heavy and so cumbersome to, to, to get into. Well, no, it was because they had to be pre... Because of quick changes, they had to be, you know, pre-arranged on the hoops and everything. So it was easier to... Um, set them all on, on the floor and they undress one, she steps out of it steps into the next one and then they pull it up and um, and then that meant that at the back of the set they just devoted a bar that they had hooks on and when the things were finished if they weren't being repeated again they just hooked them on the thing and flew them out, out of the way so I don't know if they, I don't think they did that in New York because they didn't have enough room. Right. But As small theatres. Yeah, but they did. They did on the when we started the last one we started, and, and I think in Australia the the girls with the bamboo hoops in the Western people funny. They had those all flowing at the back. Right. Yeah. There must be a big consideration when you're designing the 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 quick changes which need to take place. For the story, yeah, well. <laughs> and that, does that limit sometimes what you can achieve, or it's just another problem to solve? I just another problem to solve, you yeah. know. I mean, some of them are easy. Like I remember when we did Dusty, and there was that segment where she got off the the plane, and you know, she was singing that song. Um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the song now. 
it may be it may be this, it may be that, whatever the thing is. And the reporters were asking her about the apartheid in thing and her answer was always the song. It may be this, it may be that. And it all everything just happened in one go. And so she had a the next scene that she came down on was um going to a premiere of a movie or something. And so all as we did was she had this white plastic raincoat and a hat coming off the aeroplane and she walked upstage, two people rolled a piece of carpet downstage, the crowd covered her and she took the raincoat off and she had two loops of the ball dress and she just dropped the ball dress, or might have even been Velcroed, and she just dropped the thing and when they parted she's walking down in a ball dress. Everyone kept going, how did you do that? <laughs> and it was like like the simplest thing you could do. There was no trick to it, really. Yeah, But that must be satisfying when you create that illusion. And, oh, and, they are, yeah. 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 And, and on that same musical, there was the, um, the bit where she was diagnosed with having cancer and um, we had all those showgirls from whatever song. I've forgotten all the names of the songs. Um, and um, I was in Munich doing Silver Rose with Graham Murphy because when, when I took on the, the job in Munich, uh, Dusty wasn't a goer. It was only, you know, it was written, and, but we didn't have a producer or a guarantee. And I think we did a... A workshop for it and uh, anyway so I came in halfway through the rehearsal period back to, to Sydney and um, like a lot of those things I'd worked out you know and it was like I said to Stuart now you know we've got all these showgirls so they can all like dance around her in the wheelchair and everything and um, I can't remember whether it went from I oh, know it, it went from her being with the showgirls to being in hospital diagnosed with cancer. So they had to swap a wig and take a clothes off that was underdressed in a hospital gown and someone in a wheelchair. And Ross didn't cover her up to do it. And uh, when I saw it, I said to Stuart, that's not going to work. Like, you know, he's got to have them all around in front of her. And so, <laughs> well, no, it was shocking. Um, Ross walked over and um, Stuart said, Oh, Ross, um, Roger needs to talk to you about that number. <laughs> <laughs> Pass the buck. <laughs> Pass the buck straight over. So, I mean, he did it. He, could, he understood. Yeah. I said, that's not going to work. You've got to cover her up yeah. when they're doing it. We don't want to see them doing it behind. Well, that's why uh, successful theatre is such a collaborative process. Well, it is. It's that that communication between the different uh, creatives. And, and like, if I'd have been here in the rehearsal, I would have picked it first up and said, you know... This needs to be done. You know, can we fix that? But, you know, you have to do that all the time because, like, because that was a new musical on Dusty, they decided to cut a song and they they were all meant to be in the... AA meeting 
and the next thing they were all showgirls. <laughs> and, and Stuart said, oh, I'm going to cut that song. We need to work it out. I went, OK, the only way to work this, can we just go up on stage now and do it? And um, so I told them all to go and get dressed. And the, the showgirl underneath part was OK, the leotard, but it was the shoes and the stockings. So I had to cut the stockings, I think, and we put the girls that had the showgirl shoes in the back row. <laughs> so, like, you know, you can always solve it if you, if you know how, you know, if you think quick enough on your feet. Theatrical puzzles. And, and you're all in, 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 um, in agreement how to solve it, so mm. to speak. Mm. I mean, the few shows I've done where they change it, but they don't help you, you know. They just say, oh, I need those girls in the next scene and they've only got ten seconds to go off and come back on again. And you go, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give me 12? <laughs> yeah. So what happens post the Tony Award? Do the, the doors fly open in, in New York to work on Broadway? Um, not really, no. No, I didn't. Well, um, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really... Anne arranged... Uh, um, an agent over there but he wasn't very helpful because he already had a lot of New York clients and like I asked him to arrange some meetings with directors and he didn't do it and I sort of got the the vibe that he wasn't interested in having another person up against his, his already lucrative lot yeah. so um so yeah, I mean, look, I probably could have. I, 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 I did think after I did Forty Second Street that I'd go back and give it twelve months, um, but then September Eleventh happened, and so I decided not to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have returned to Broadway a couple of times since The King and I, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I've done. I did King and I. What did I do next? Um, <laughs> look on the wall. Um, I think I did 42nd Street next. And then I did Jesus Christ Superstar. And then... Then I just did King Kong. 42nd Street astounds me. What a, a theatrical jigsaw that is. I mean, huge cast. And those production numbers. I mean, I, I remember the production, uh, the number of dames... And you've got 20, it seemed like 50 chorus girls coming out, each in a different frock. I think we had, I think we had 24 girls and then there was the leading girl and Peggy Sawyer and then I think any time Annie was a, um, a principal and so she was like a principal in the chorus... So 24, 25, so we had 26. Wow. And I think in London we had even more because they allowed the understudies to go on For that in number. a couple of numbers. Right. And I think we put them into Dames and the opening number and the finale. So, so a show like 42nd Street, how many individual designs would contribute to that show? <laughs> well, I remember when, when I got offered it. And um, I was with Anne at the time. And, well, I'm still with Anne. 
um, she rang me up and she said, oh, I've just got a phone call, you know, they want you to do 42nd Street in New York. I said, oh, don't be stupid, you know. And she said, no, I'm serious. And uh, so I went over, because I did know Mark Bramble. Um, oh, okay. Because he, he came out here to do the original production. And... Um, did you work on that, the original production? Well, I went and had all the beading done for them right, in right, India. Right. Because... Um, there was no one to do it, really. And this production that you were about to work on was the big revival, wasn't it? it was Since the, that original Gower yeah, Champion, yeah. It was the revival, yeah, in 2002 or something. <laughs> we, we can look it up as you search your notes. Yeah, yeah something like that. Anyway, so um, it, it was probably the biggest show I'd ever done. Yeah. And I have to say... Mark Bramble as a director, because um, he was the original show writer. He, he, he wrote, wrote, the, wrote book the book. For yeah, it. yeah. Um, he and Michael Stewart wrote it and uh, adapted it. And um, he was um, he was no nonsense. He was a bit like Richard Wirt, you know, a really nice person. You know, you you could say anything you wanted, and you know, he'd laugh or he'd cry or whatever. But like he didn't, he didn't like production meetings because he said there's always somebody who wants to hijack the production meetings. And I had a uh, a girl I used to work with in London was my supervisor over there all the time. We go to these production meetings, and Wendy would say, as soon as we got there, um, can we do wardrobe first because we. Um, we've got to go to a fitting and, and then we'd do it and leave and she'd say well otherwise you sit there all night talking about sound or the drum kits you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so Mark's, Mark was the same and he, what he used to do was after, after we did the tech or whatever instead of having a note session he used to type out set, costume and lighting on one piece of paper, so, so that it would be Roger, her shoes, funny colour, you know, lighting, can we have a brighter follow spot in this number? And so, like, there was no hiding anything, but um, you could just go, you know, he'd come in the next day and you go, I've done that, yeah, that's all right. Why do you want me to change that? And he'd say, oh, well, if you think strong enough, I'll have another look. You know, he, he was really good. And there was no big dramas about anything. And, like, that was the biggest show I ever did. And it was the easiest for somehow. It, it wasn't, wasn't sort of easy to start with because that year there were so many musicals opening. And... Um, we had the biggest show of all and of course in New York you don't give one costume house all the costumes, you spread it over all these things. Well, they were all doing the shows in order of them opening opening yeah. or, you know, taking in, yeah. the, in the theatre. And Barbara Matera had the leads and I'd go down, they were doing the money number... Too, and I'd go down and she'd go, 
oh, I'm sorry, we're just so busy, I haven't had time to do the prototype, you know. And I go, oh, okay. And we go, and like, no, our show wasn't happening at all. I think our show finished up getting made in like two weeks flat. Wow. Because, like, they were just clearing them as they needed to. And one poor girl in the chorus, she was uh, an ex-rockette, and she came to me one day at the end of rehearsal. She said, are they going to fire me? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I haven't had a costume fitting. And it's like <laughs> two weeks, and I haven't had a fitting for anything. She said, so I thought they're going to get rid of me if they're not going to dress me. Yeah. I said, don't worry. I said, nobody's got any costumes at the minute. I said, I'll take you shopping down Fifth Avenue if we have to. <laughs> I said, no, you're not going to get fired. It's, it's um, our department, you know. You became the go-to man for 42nd Street, didn't you? Because you did another production in the West End. and mm, uh, Yeah. So, so 42nd Street, we did it in New York. Then we did a national tour and then we did it in Stuttgart um, it was a bit weird it only lasted 12 months in Stuttgart and it was due to move to Berlin but I don't know they pulled the plug on it I think I think because of the cost of it like um, it's a huge show isn't it it's, it's salaries like, and it's like design. a cast of 52 mm. and you know I don't know how many dresses and wig people and stage hands backstage it's ginormous sound crew you know it's like when we did it in London um, in 2017 we did it and Mark said this is the last time this show would ever have a bigger production like this again he said, because nobody can afford it, right. you know. And they didn't really make any money out of it because um, even though it was very popular and sold a lot, I think they needed to be capacity, <laughs> like, to actually break yeah. even. So, um, yeah. Because was it the Palladium, was it? No, no. It was no, at the the Theatre Royal. I did King and I at the Palladium and we did it at Drury Lane, Theatre Royal Drury Lane. Right. So that was a bit of a buzz, yeah. I'm always astounded at the cost of a costume. What what would a, what would a, say Anna in the King and I? What would her costume budget be? Well, because well, the costumes, I mean, they're expensive too. I imagine they have to be opulent, but they've also got to last over yeah. a couple of years, maybe if the season's yeah. run that long. Well, I think um, like New York is the worst. I mean. The, the problem with New York is that the rents are so high and they all need to be in town, close to the theatres. And um, and also, I think, there was, there was a thing about union shops in New York where if you were a big company and had been going for a long time, you were a union shop where other small shops that grew up they weren't union shops, so they didn't have to pay the union wages and the, all the things that went with it. Um, and so I think that's why it became so expensive. Um, but like Mrs Anna's ball dress in 
New York costs something like ten thousand US dollars. That's extraordinary for the ball dress. Wow! But um, I mean, on King and I, I had a little silk slip that was like two thousand dollars. You know, you could probably go and buy one at Macy's for considerably less, hundred dollars. You know, so. But would it last as long? Well, probably not. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. because they, you know, they do need to be made. I mean, most shows now you've got everything's got to be quick changed, you know, because people are doing musicals like their films, you know. In the old days, um, you know, they'd bring in a cloth, painted cloth in the front while they changed the scenery behind. But now that, you know, people want to see it all happen in front of them. And so if, if you've got a scene change, the music plays on and the set changes in front of you and then they come on but um, it used to be like that really mm. um, but now everything's a quick change on King Kong the opening number had four costumes one over the top of the other and then they cut the last one so none of the clothes fitted <laughs> so they all had to be refitted did, did King Kong change much from... Uh, I saw it in Melbourne, but from, yeah, from Melbourne to Broadway? Yeah, did, yeah. Did, but did, I'd rather not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> was it a joyful experience? Not really. Right. <laughs> did your costumes change much? Totally. Right. It was okay. a redesign. Right, OK. You know? so, and they gave me no money because they bought the costumes from Sydney and then from Melbourne and then they didn't want to use them when we got there. It was a joke, really. Anyway... So from King and I to, to King Kong is about a 20-year period, I guess. Mm. Did you see the New York scene changing much in that time or working on Broadway? Not really, because, I mean, it's quite interesting that actually if you go and work overseas, you get treated much better than you get treated in your own country. Right. So, you know, like most of the people who I worked with, I'd worked with since the King and I... And um, um, Catherine, who opened Tricorn when Barbara Matera closed, she was her head cutter. Well, when we did 42nd Street, she just opened her own shop and I was like one of her first clients that kicked her off, you know. She, we gave her quite a big chunk of 42nd Street. So, you know, then you go there and... You know, you're working with Bob Mackey next door to you. And, um, On the share show. He was doing the share show. <laughs> and, um, you know, you get treated like everybody, you know, every other designer there. Where here you get treated like you're a nuisance, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Coco Chanel said, before you leave the house, look in the mirror and remove one accessory. Uh, <laughs> can, can, uh, can costumes be over-designed? I'm not talking about yours, but costumes that you've seen. Can, is less more? Um, no, they can be over-designed. Yeah. And I think that tends to happen quite a bit in New York. Um, you know, where people are appliquing and dying and, you know, they buy a piece of fabric and they'll pay $180 for the, a metre for it and then they'll dyed another colour, they'll applique something over the top of it and stick something else 
over the top of that again to get an effect. And but like when you see it on stage, it, you don't get the result of what that's been. And I, I think the other the thing is that like because we've never been able to be indulged like that in Australia, um, I think designers in Australia have been much more frugal about how they create things. Um, maybe like a quicker process as opposed to a, a long process, you know, of doing it. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's a bit, could be a bit money orientated. Tell me about one of my favourite shows which you designed, and that was the musical Nine, which John Dietrich <laughs> directed. Um, Glorious-looking show. Yeah, it was. And um, inspired by Italian catwalks, it would seem. Well, it, uh, it was taken from the original yeah, production, Yeah, the Fellini really. film. Oh, and the original. Yeah, that they did it black and white. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was all, really, but... But that was a bit hard because at the time there weren't many makers and Bob Murphy in Melbourne was the biggest one but he'd taken on something else. He sort of agreed to do it and then we didn't have a start date or something and I don't know what happened but I, I sort of got a bit caught in the end. But yeah, it was it was a nice one to do. Like John Dietrich rang me up and said... <laughs> I'm doing the musical now and I've been told that I didn't know him from Adam and he said I've been told you're the only person to get to design it he said when can I come and see you I said oh well when do you want to come he said oh how about an hour (laughs) 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 it was quite funny he knocked on the door and we hit it off but um, no that was that was a good one to do but that didn't really do as well as it should have either oh no it was a brilliant show it's one of my top five nights in the theatre, I would say. But yes, the design conceit was that all of the 21 women, black costumes all throughout, and then they appear, I think, for the finale or the yeah, last the in, in white costumes yeah. of, of replicas of what they've been wearing. But it was funny because I was doing Jerry's Girls in Sydney at the same time. And so I was running between Melbourne and Sydney on two women's shows, you know. And um, yeah. You, you must have an understanding of the female form then and what works for them to, to, to make them look as flattering and as, as best as possible. Is it? Well, well, I like to think I know a few tricks, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, where you actually put the waistline or, you know, where you dart something in or, you know, there, there are a few tricks to, to help people look good, yeah. you know. Um, I mean, as a designer, the makers, the one they're always frightened of is what they call the designer grab, where you just grab the fabric at the back and pull it, <laughs> pull it tight on them, you know. Yeah. And you go, I want it like this. It was very funny on 42nd Street. Um, I used to always say, lower, lower with the boob line, you know, and tighter, tighter. And at the end of it, the girls who were working on it with me, the assistants, they had a T-shirt. So Roger said, tighter, tighter, lower, lower. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good mantra. <laughs> yeah. So. 
So was designing for the theatre, for film, television, always on your radar as a kid? Did you, you wanted to be a, a designer? Or yeah, work in because like when I was still at school, I used to go on the weekends over to the old independent theatre and help paint scenery. And um, I did that for a while. And uh, Rose Jackson was in charge of the wardrobe for the old tote. And sometimes on weekends I'd go over and to their workroom and, you know, glue stuff on. I couldn't sew. I still can't sew. And um, because a friend of mine years ago, she had a costume shop in the city and she used to design for the Menzies Theatre Restaurant that used to do musicals. A lot of musicals, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think the first thing I ever designed was the Devils for Suds University. (laughs) And she made the costumes. And she said to me, Roger, I'm going to give you a word of advice. If you want to be a costume designer, never learn how to sew because she said, you'll only find yourself sitting behind behind a machine, sewing and not designing. And it was probably the best advice I ever got. But, but luckily, when I started designing at the ABC, there was all these little old ladies in there who were so amazing. You know, I remember one woman, Marsha Hines, I bought this really weird sequined fabric and there was only like one meter of it and I did this sort of asymmetric top and um, with pants or something for her and I went down and I said to Norrie he was going to make it I said now that's all I've got so you know can we do a pattern or something and she goes oh yeah so I'm explaining it and then she threw the fabric on the table and got the scissors and <laughs> chopped into it. I went, don't cut it. She said, it's all right. And she cut it and she pinned it on the dummy. Right. And it was it. Yeah. You know. And I, and I, I learned a lot from those women. And um, on, when we were doing Melbourne, doing all those real period costumes. There's a film. The film, yeah. yeah I used to... Um, I'd do a drawing, but sometimes I'd just go down and we had bought a whole lot of trim and fabrics and everything, and I'd go down and I'd just see what was on the shelf and I'd pull it off and I'd drape it all on a dummy and then I'd say to somebody, take a photo of it, that's what I want, you know. So um, So did you go to art school after... Um, no, no, I, I, I didn't. I... Um, I, my mother wanted me to go to art school, but I, I don't know, I didn't really want to go to school again, right. I think after I finished school. Um, so you're obviously a good drawer, I imagine. Not really, no. no. Right. So that's developed over the years. Well, I, I've learned how to cheat. <laughs> 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 it was funny, I was cleaning up, and the drawings I did for, on our selection, the movie, they were really good drawings, and... Uh, I was sending everything to the Performing Arts Museum and, and I, there was a whole book of them. And I went, oh, these are really good drawings. So I went and photocopied them to keep a copy. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I've learned 
over the years how to cheat enough to, you know. So, so who would you say were your great teachers? Those women who worked at the ABC or...? Well, well yeah, and also the guy who ran the uh, design department at the ABC, um, Doug Smith ran it first, and he was good because um, he gave me a job as an assistant because Roger Ford, who is a designer, has done all the big movies here now, he was English and he... He was doing Auntie Jack and and things, and I was working with him doing props, and I told him I wanted to do design, and he said, well, I, I'm supposed to do the Auntie Jack, next Auntie Jack series, and there's no, there's no assistance. It doesn't look like I'm going to get one. And uh, he said, I'll have a talk to Doug, you know, if he'll give you a go. So he said, oh, you've got to go and see Doug at three o'clock, you know, and so I I went up and he said, well, I'll give you a go, but, you know, your drafting's got to be up to scratch because that's all you did was architectural drafting, really. And um, so he said, "Um, four weeks you can start and I'll... I'll, But you're only going to get two months trial. And I went, Okay. So I used to, when I used to finish at three o'clock, I used to go up to Roger Ford's office and he gave me drafting lessons. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, so I became his assistant and I did a lot of things with Roger until then they had a small unit that used to look after play school and we used to do GTK, you know, like a rock clip. Um, you know, look after the presenters on Four Corners and stuff, that sort of thing. And that you were like a junior designer. And so they put me into there for a while. And um, and then Doug used to, um, um, at five o'clock, come and lean over your shoulder. What are you doing, you know? And uh, he, he, he used to give me the shit, you know, and I, I'd go... <laughs> And Barbara, who was another designer there, one day I was, like, had enough, you know, and she said, she came in after he left, and I said, oh, I'm sick of it, you know, he just comes in and drives me mad every day. She said, don't worry, I, he did that to me. He only, does it if he, he only does it if he thinks you're good. And then, so then, I got the Marsha Hine show. No, my first break as a designer was the Norman Gunston show and I did all the Norman Gunstons live to air and um, is this uh, this is set as well as costume mm, yeah and then then the next big thing was Marsha Hines and I was in Roger Ford's office and they had a big whiteboard with the shows coming up and who was gonna do it and um, his Marsha Hines show and it had his name against it and I said, oh, Marsha Hineshaw, I'd like to do that. And he said, no, I'm doing it. And um, so then the next time I was in there, um, his name was crossed off it. I said, what's happened to your name against Marsha <laughs> He said, well, they've put it back and um, I've booked to go back to England with my wife and child for a holiday. 
and I can't really change it. I said, well, put my name against it. <laughs> he said, no, I can't, you know, like there's all these other senior designers here that, you know, I have to give it to before I can give it to you. Anyway, I don't know what happened, but he did, he gave it to me. Right. And that was sort of my big break, the but ABC. As you describe, I mean, this is a glorious time at the ABC when they had a whole wardrobe department looking oh, after look, the ABC, like the amount of designers that came out of there that had international careers was ridiculous, you know. There was... Um, oh, Bernard Hines and Virginia Beneman, they, they got married and they moved to America and they did films in L.A. They lived in L.A. Um, Janet Patterson, she did the costumes on the piano and all those Jane Campion things. Yeah. She was nominated for Oscars. Um, George Little... You know, he did international films out of America and places. Um, Roger Ford's doing all the big ones here, you know. Um, like, it was amazing the amount of people um, that sort of did really well from that design department. And, in fact, the, the design APDG, or whatever it's called, they gave me a lifetime achievement or something and and I I said to Roger Ford he was sitting there that night I said well really I owe my career to Roger Ford because if he hadn't have given me drafting lessons and taken me on as an assistant I probably would have never become a designer did you go there straight from school no no I went to Channel 7 first and I just became a stagehand And then I left and I went to England. And then I worked in theatre doing props and stuff backstage um, for about two or three years there. And then I came home and got a job at the ABC. That's how that all happened. Yeah, fantastic. Well, back to, you know, some of the shows we've discussed, uh, 42nd Street and Dusty, um, The King and I, they're all very glamorous shows. But, but you've also done shows like Whistle Down the Wind, which I suppose yeah. are a little less glamorous. Is it, is it diff- more difficult to design uh, costumes which don't have that um, shimmer and shine and pizzazz? No, I think that's easier, right. shimmer. <laughs> because it was interesting. Like, I did the movie Blood Oath, which was a war movie, and... Um, and I won an AFI award for it, which was weird. But right. What I was won- it in a POW camp or something, was it? Or? Yeah, it was, yeah. All, it was um, about the Japanese war atrocities and the, um, the trials on Ambon after the war. Right. And, um, yeah, so that, that, was, um, that was quite funny. But, look, you know, sometimes it's as... And then... It was interesting when I did Turtle Beach, which was sort of, um, well, it was period in the fact that it was 60s and 70s and 80s. But, you know, we had refugee camps there and everything. And we had all these refugees that were jumping off boats and being housed in refugee camps. 
and and I took a you know a thing to make that all grey and whatever. And it was interesting that the director was sitting behind me when we were looking at the rushes, and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, "Thanks, Rog." He said. Nobody would think a design has been anywhere near it. <laughs> but he said, you've actually made the pictures by the colour. Yeah. You know. So, you know, even, even when you're doing... They can be as difficult, you know. Because sometimes with those sort of... Like if you're doing historical things like war, you've got to be, um, you know, about the insignia and the... The uniform, the detail. Yeah, you can't really like like on that movie. There was a an associate producer, and she wanted the there was a, a naval officer was coming up for trial, and she wanted him in one of those um, you know bullion embroidered coats with the epaulettes, yep. and you, you see them. You see, like they're only worn at um, coronations of the Japanese emperor or something, you know, and um, she said, oh, you know, he should wear that when he, he's on trial. I said, you can't wear that, you know, that, like, that's ridiculous. Oh, no, it would look fabulous. I said, it might look fabulous, but it's inappropriate. Yes, is it you authentic? Know? Is it truthful to yeah. look yeah, at the moment? And, and I said, you can only do things within the bounds of believability when you're doing... Because with a film, people expect it to be real. And it could be because it's close up too, isn't it? Well, it is very You get close a closer up. look at the costume than yeah. you do on stage. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, yeah, it's always important to do the neck properly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Those close-ups. Yeah. So, you know, like, it's nice to do glamorous-looking period things, but sometimes it can be as difficult doing realism... Yeah. You know, tell me about the Jesus Christ Superstar because that was a big revival. I mean, the original production. Uh, who, who designed the costumes of that? Because Brian Thompson did the sets, didn't he? Yeah, I don't know. Who did I don't that. know. But it, it had a, a very particular look of the, of the period. Well, it was um, it was hippies, sixties, sixties. Yeah. No, well, when we did it, we. So how how do you bring that to a contemporary audience? Because you worked with Gary Woods on that, didn't you? Yeah. So how did you decide on what well, that look was to be? Well, that was quite funny too because, um, first of all, she and the producer for Really Useful, Useless, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as everybody calls them, um, they, Rent was the, the hit. And so they kept saying... Oh, you know, we want them to look quirky like the people in Rent. So I scoured London for quirky things, you know, and I went to all those trendy markets and... Port Bella Road and... Oh, no, it was Camden Markets right. and all that stuff. And I found, all you know, little designer shops that had weird handbag things and things you'd wear, you know. And um, anyway, so... I got some stuff together and I I spent quite a few dollars on it and um, I took all these photos we got an actor in and dressed him up with all the looks and they were really good they were you know quirky like what they were talking about 
and um, then I showed them to Gail and uh, she said, oh yes, it's interesting, you know, and then <laughs> she rang me the next day and she said, listen, I don't want any of that, I just want t-shirt and jeans. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I called her for everything. I said, I've just wasted, you know, a whole month and money, you know. You're all carrying on, you want the quirky, quirky but whatever, now you don't want it. And um, so, but I'm trying to think. This was for the film. Right. When we did the film at Pinewood. And we'd done the, the tour because she, she did it with John Napier in, in the West End. Right. And she fought with him the whole time. And there's the famous story where she went in and took the scissors to the costumes. So when they wanted to do a tour, because we were doing Whistle Down the Wind, she said, I'll only do it if I can redesign it all with my Whistle Down the Wind team. And so that's how we did it. And um, so then, then when we did the... The film, that's what they wanted for that. And uh, and then as it turned out, you know, it, I used bits of it, but I didn't sort of push it as hard as I did before. So The yeah. collaboration comes into it again. And yes, What exactly. does the director want? What, what's <laughs> going to work? Yeah. You've designed a lot for opera and ballet also. Does that require a different approach? Because you are... You're designing for for singers or for dancers who need a particular movement or access in their in their costume. Well, look, I think with dancers because I've done so many musicals and my training at the ABC with the Marsha Hines shows, where there were dancers in everything, I just got used to how you do things. For I mean, I had a few disasters at the ABC where I made a couple of things out of. Um, was only one way stretched, two way stretched, and I don't know what we were filming it on Monday, and I don't know why. I said to Robin, "Oh, can can you get a dancer to come down?" And I tried this costume on and make sure it's okay, and um, we put it on her, and I said, "Oh, you know, like do the splits, go down, and whatever," and she goes, "Rip!" Oh, yeah, like it wouldn't move with her. Yeah. Well, it was only one way stretch and we put it this way and there was nothing this way you know and um, so luckily in those days Joan Barry had I forgot what her shop was called she used to do all the lycra things and I knew Joan well and it was like five o'clock I rang Joan and I said Joan I'm in trouble you know I said if I come in tomorrow after you close at 12 do you think you could make 10 leotards for me she said, oh, of course I could. For you, I will, but you have to bring a cake and make me coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we did it and um, did them in lycra. So, so I, I, I guess you, you learn to know how to do things for dancers. And, and also singers, I singers guess, are don't want different. anything around their throat. They don't, or... never want anything around their throat. And um, some people... Women like corsets because it holds them in for breathing and others don't like them at all. So, you know, it's horses for courses, I guess, but you just have to sort that out as you go. 
and, and be adaptable. Yeah. Mm. Um, have you changed anything once you've seen it in a tech? You think it's not not quite working? Um, <laughs> I had a very good one on 42nd Street. Um, they put a new song in for Sheena Easton. Um, it was playing Dorothy Brock, wasn't she? She was playing Dorothy Block, and it was um, Boulevard of Broken Dreams um, in London. And she, she, um, she was singing. It was a Parisian street scene with her under a lamppost. Now, if that's not a hooker, what is it? And, <laughs> and um, so I was doing stuff out of India, and that was one of the things I was making. And it was a corset with fringe skirt and stuff and whatever and um, we put it on her and she went I'm never going to wear this she said this, I can't possibly wear this <laughs> uh, as it turned out she turned out to be the nicest person she was very insecure because she hadn't been in a show for 20 years she'd just been buying stuff with a friend of hers and altering them for concerts and stuff and um, and in the end, when I tweaked that costume, it was her favourite costume in the show. And um, but but talking about changing things quickly, um, they put they decided to put two dancers into it. And um, I had a a guy in a striped shirt and black pants because it was you know Paris. Mm cliche Paris mm-hmm. you know uh, but what, what I didn't tell you about um, Sheena was that Mark said to her think Edith Piaf <laughs> little Edith Piaf a little black dress you know like it's not a hooker and uh, I'm doing a hooker he's telling her Edith Piaf <laughs> so anyway um, they decided to put two of these dancers in the background of the number in the beginning Anyway, so I had her in a red dress and he in a red and white striped top and black pants. And it was lined, her dress was lined in red. Anyway, um, Mark kept going, I don't don't think this was a good idea to put these two in here, but I don't sort of want to cut them yet, you know. And... uh, I said, oh, yeah, OK. And, uh, so he said, um, do you think you could put a black T-shirt on him and could you get a black dress for her? And I went, oh, God, not that quick, you know. So they stopped for a coffee break and I raced up on stage and I got the supervisor and I said, can you go and grab that dress? And... Uh, so she bought the dress back and I turned it inside out and um, I went, like it was very nicely made because it was lined in the, it was a red dress lined in black and so I turned the dress inside out. I said, go and put that on her. The only problem was it had a red zip down the back but, you know, we can change that. And, um, and so they they came in and uh, came back to the thing and they started again 
and these two I've got the black t-shirt on him and she walks out in a black dress and he, and he said how did you do that I said oh secret <laughs> magician <laughs> magician so I mean you can have a bit of fun you yeah, know yeah. when these things happen if you don't get your knickers in or not lighting must be pretty important to your costumes too oh yeah they can make or break exactly yeah. yes I did have that happen with an opera once. Right. and I said to the lighting designer this is an effect and it's not going to work unless it's really dark because a lot of them are in leotards and whatever and uh, when we started the tech and they came on they're in bloody full light and I said turn it down you know like we need this to be dark and he, he did but then then when we got to the end he like brought all the lights up again like I had to like get on to Stuart and say look tell him cut the light yeah. you know but it depends you know some lighting designers think they know what they're doing and they don't care what you think yeah but not, not everyone's like that. You know? But you're all there telling the same story, aren't you? Well, that's so, right. Yeah. And, you know, like like the guy who did 42nd Street in London, he did King Kong in Melbourne. He's an English lighting designer, really nice guy. And so Mark said to me, oh, do you know any lighting designers there? And I said, yes, you know, book him. And I, he and Mark didn't get on for the first week of the tech. Oh, it was embarrassing. And I kept thinking, oh, I'm the one who uh, Put them together. Rec- recommended him. But he did do a, a fabulous job and they did get on after that. I think it was a bit terminology sort of thing. But um, he, he was one of the nicest guys. And if you had a problem, you could go and say, oh, listen, I'm... I need you to uh, make that darker or can have a bit more light, you know, and they do it. Mm. Have you got a favourite costume or a costume that you're really proud of in uh, from your vast career? No, because I've done it. <laughs> so many. It's been like <laughs> choosing which one's your favourite child. Um, <laughs> oh, God. No, I don't know. Because, I mean, you, your resume is vast. Well, I suppose it is, yeah. I suppose it's some. Um... <laughs> yeah. I don't know. A favourite show that was a, was a joy. Well, well, I mean, look, The King and I was a thrill because it sort of put me on the international stage, I suppose. And, I mean, look, I've been very lucky because, like, up until when we did Chicago, if you wanted to work in London or New York... You had to go and live there, you know. Um, people like Kenneth Rowell and Luden Sandhill all lived in London and worked in London. Um, you know, Ollie Kelly went to Hollywood. I mean, it, it's it's interesting that, you know, costume designers from Australia have done very well, you know. You've got Gabriella now and um, Catherine Martin... You know, Tim Chapel. Tim Chapel. There are people from Australia all over the place. There's another designer doing films over there too. I can't think of his name. Um, yeah, like, well, there's, there's the girl that did Matrix, 
she's she works in America all the time. Like, really, from a small country like Australia, with not the amount of theatrical background that you know you're exposed to if you live in New York or or London or Europe, um, we we've punched heavy weight, I think. Mm. You know. Which is quite interesting when you think about it. Yeah. So. And you've been part of that, part of the the weight punching. Well, well, I suppose considerably. I've been, <laughs> I've been very lucky, but you know, I've had a good time out of it. I can't complain. So yeah. It's taken me all over the world doing things, and you know, I haven't been going for work in a bank every nine o'clock every morning. So, yeah. no, I have been very lucky. So. So what's next? Well, nothing. <laughs> it all got cancelled. But I have to say, I think I, I, I'm sort of losing interest a bit now. I never thought I'd say it, but right. I think King Kong did it to me. Right. You know. Just wasn't the experience that you were hoping it would be. Well, it shouldn't have been. shouldn't have happened to it what happened to it, really. Right. You know. But there was a lot of silliness went on. Um, people making bad decisions and changing everything every five minutes because this person said that and that person said this. Listening to too many people. No too, one, too many cooks for the broth. Well, there's <laughs> a bit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's always a thrill to <laughs> see a Roger Kirk design in the theatre. and oh. um, uh, It's interesting that you say that you've lost interest a bit but um, I think COVID may have done that to a lot of artists it's, there's been a, a f- enforced pause in which people have been able to reflect on a few things and decided whether well there, there is doubt about what the future of the business will be isn't it? Well, well I suppose but I mean you know like like I did King Kong and then my next gig was Hugh Jackman's World Tour you know and, like, you can't find a nicer guy to work with than Hugh and his group of people. And um, and then I just think, well, like, that was good. The experience before wasn't very good. And and my all my experiences on Broadway before King Kong were fabulous. I had a great time, you know. Um, so, I don't know. I did say to somebody, I'll I'll only do what Stuart offers me then. (laughs) Hugh or Hugh if he does another tour. But, you know... um, Well, you've got to know what brings you joy. Well, look, years ago, when we were doing Jonah Jones at the Sydney Theatre Company, um, Richard was directing it. And I I really can't remember what it was all about. Um... I think it might have been breaking the set down or something and um, it was the last tech before the preview and when you know they used to have two previews or something anyway in the middle of it he turned to me and he said oh you know you said so and so do you think you could do that now and and I like, I'm very calm. I don't really normally scream and yell. Um, but I sort of lost it because I I knew I couldn't fix it now. It was too late. 
whatever he was asking me to do and I did suggest it and if he'd have said yes there and then we could have could have done it but anyway so when the rehearsal finished <laughs> Richard said can you just pop into my office on the way out and I went okay so I went down and I sat down well he used to have a couch we all used to lie on the couch you know and uh, he said well first of all I want to apologise he said I shouldn't have said what I said because you offered it to me two weeks ago and I didn't think enough about it and uh, he said so I'm sorry um, but he said listen we're not here to fight he said we're here to have fun and if we can't have fun we shouldn't be doing it and I've told that to a few directors <laughs> that's a good mantra isn't it <laughs> you know start to yell and scream so yeah and it's true you know but, but I think the big problem with things at the moment is there's so much money at stake you know when you get on these big musicals where it's millions and millions of dollars, um, you know, I think things get a bit tense because of the, the money involved, really. Yeah, where, big where, business. Where, like, like after the, you know, I was working at the ABC, but I was doing all this work at the same time at the Sydney Theatre Company, and... Um, Dan asked me how I did it, really. And Doug Smith, who was the head of the design department, he, he never said anything. Um, because I think he thought it was more kudos to his department that somebody was doing Chicago at the, at the Opera House, you know? And um, so I was lucky that I'd been supported like that, really. But yeah, I've never forgot. I always tell that story. You know, we're not here to fight. We're here to have fun. And and I suppose the problem with that was Richard had just taken over running the theatre company, and we were all we were all like kids in a candy shop. We just did what we wanted. There was no one to pull us up because he was the artistic director, but he was part of it. You know. And I remember he did something down there that, you know, oh, there was ter- terrible controversy about it, you know, sticking things up people's bum and it was a period romp or something. And uh, I said to him, oh, you know, getting a bit of bad publicity. He said, even bad publicity is good publicity, he said. And he, the there was one slot in the season was in November I think and he used to call it his art slot and he said I don't care if nobody comes <laughs> he said it's it's the slot that I hope that people will do whatever they want with without any restraint and I'm not relying on a box office to subsidise it and so I mean that was pretty brave of him yeah you can take a risk yeah. and try things out yeah, yeah. so um and he did one and was got panned, <laughs> I remember. But, you know, now he's stuck by it, you know. But, yeah, look, I guess I was lucky that I got free reign in my youth, and, you know, all the time, between the ABC and between um, the Sydney Theatre Company. So. Well, thanks, Rog. It's been an absolute delight to, uh, to hear your story and... Um 
the anecdotes that you've shared with us today. <laughs> I hope I didn't offend anybody. No, no, it was absolutely fine. Yes. Don't fight, just have fun. Exactly, yeah. I was so delighted to celebrate Roger's extensive career and vast repertoire of work. He's done it all, from designing for Norman Gunston at the ABC to winning a Tony Award for The King and I on Broadway. Dreams do come true. Roger Kirk is one of Australia's most accomplished and recognised designers, and it was uh, my pleasure to have him as our guest today on Stages. Hasn't it been an awesome season four so far? There's more exciting conversations to come across a range of platforms. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.